Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 54. I'm your host, Derek Moore. Today, we're going to be talking about all of these predictions for the decade ahead, the two decades ahead. Why are so many people saying that the market is bound to have lower average annualized returns going forward? And who's right, who's wrong? And I'll give you some different viewpoints to look at it. And plus, I think with a lot of these, they're really not looking at you know, they go back and, and judge these different environments and then look at valuation. I've done some things in the past. I'll link to it on the Warren Buffett indicator, which looks at, you know, the market cap over uh, GDP and those types of things. But I do think that sometimes they don't look at the inflation environment, the cost of capital and those types of things. So uh, this week, I'll bring your attention to, uh, I think it's called of dollars and cents, of dollars and Data, okay, of dollars and data. I'll link to it in the show notes. And it was kind of an interesting look at, uh, based upon the 10 years prior, is that any is there any predictive value of the next 10 years average annualized total return? And then also looked at sort of a 20-year look back and 20-year forward. And there's really two things that I'm hearing people talk about. Number one is, a lot of people say, well, the last decade, uh, hard to believe a decade's gone, but it's you know 2010 through 2019, and the average annual total return was about 13.3%. And that was good. That was a, a good decade. The decade before the average annual return, the compounded annual average return, was about negative 1%. And what that means is, let's say that you had your money from 2000 to 2009, you would have realized a compounded annual growth rate of about negative 1% annually. When we say 2010 to 2019, 13.3% compounded annual growth rate, total return, that includes dividends. That means, uh, assuming you didn't put in any money, take out any money, that you would have realized about a 13.3% annualized return. And so you're seeing a lot of stuff where they're trying to work backwards and say, you know, look, we had this type of return. What is most likely going to happen uh, with the the next decade? And it is kind of interesting because you know, there's always this thing about using historical returns, and historical returns are historical. And really, there's no, you know, just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. In fact, I would tell you that. In general, I would say, you know, I don't really know what the market's going to do. And I know that might fa- sound a little bit funny, but, you know, the reality is we really don't know what the market's going to do. And that's why I'm an advocate of, you know, buying the market, but having a buffer, a downside buffer, or having hedges in place so that if you do get some sort of a bear market or major drawdown, you know, hopefully you've got some protection or buffers in place. But, you know, past performance, as they always say on every you know, prospectus or anything that you read, they always say it's no guarantee or no prediction of future uh, results as well. So to give you an idea, let's start off with, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things that this, the last year, in fact, you know, the the 31% 2019, including dividends, total return, was some sort of a crazy outlier. And, you know, the reality is markets are up more than they're down. And if you think about, you know, there's some data from Aswath Damodaran, NYU uh, Stern School of Business, 
And I think using his numbers going back to 26 or 28, the nominal, uh, so not the compounded annual growth rate, but the nominal growth rates, about 11.5%. I think the, the standard deviation is somewhere around you know, 17 or 18. And so uh, using those metrics uh, last year would have been only a, a little bit out of uh, the one standard deviation range. Remember that old bell curve, 68% of the time, results are within that bell curve. And then once you get out of there, it's a multiple standard deviation. And we look at, uh, so that's one thing. And I think you're seeing uh, a lot of talk about how much of an outlier it is. Remember the previous year, we were actually down on the S&P 500, uh, not including dividends, I think down about 7%, down uh, with dividends to soften the blow. I think you're only down about, you know, four or 5%. I'd have to check that. But that, that's about the back of the napkin number. So we look at the decade. The decade was positive 13.3% based upon some numbers that I put together. And, uh, you know, so the 2010s, 2000s, the 2000s, uh, almost negative 1% annualized return. And the 80s and 90s were 17.68 and 18.30, respectively. And one of the interesting things we found was that going back to 1900, there were actually only two years we had. Uh, two decades where you had a negative annualized compounded growth rate, and that was the 1930s. Uh, of course, you know there were little little depression, something that happened there, and the 2000s. And the 2000s was, of course, the tech boom, and uh, you had not only that, but you also had 2008 financial crisis and you know the low in 2009. So, uh, but you know the decade uh, was probably only the fifth best going back to the 1900s. Um, so, you know, not, nothing crazy, but again, who knows what's going to happen in the years coming, you know, forward, which brings us to this idea that people try and predict based upon valuations, based upon maybe using the Schiller Cape ratio or using past returns to sort of predict the future returns. And so there's a couple different ways to look at this. Um, number one is, you know, I won't go into the Schiller Cape ratio too much, but essentially what Schiller did was uh, it's a cyclically adjusted, the C and the A, and the price to earnings, CAPE, for CAPE ratio. And basically what you do is you take the last 10 years of earnings on the S&P and you average those all together. And then you take the current price of the S&P divided by that average and you get your cyclically adjusted PE ratio. Now, uh, a lot of people point to the CAPE being high and about returns, uh, being much lower when that's high, um, that had, I believe, a really um, a much higher correlation. I don't know if it's still the same. And the other thing that really doesn't take into account is interest rates. And you know, some other people point out there's been changes in accounting. I won't, I won't go into it too much, uh, but if you Google CAPE ratio and uh, Siegel, Siegel talks about maybe some of the faults of it. And Vanguard has a piece where they do a two-step regression Sounds complicated. It probably is, uh, but they they try and smooth it out a little bit. Uh, but if you look at let's say just a, a forward PE ratio, so what is that? Well, a price to earnings ratio, of course, is looking last four quarters. And so, if a stock's trading at you know ten dollars, and the earnings per share was a dollar, then it's trading at ten times earnings. It's price to earnings ratio. Now, let's say the forecast for the next four quarters is the earnings will grow to $2. So we would say, okay, well, it's trading at $10, but now we're trading at 
analyst making predictions about the future. They're not set in stone, but this is what they think the earnings are going to be. And if they think the earnings are going to be $2, we'd say it's trading at a forward 5 PE. Why? Because the stock's trading at 10 and now your, uh, your estimates are $2. And so one of the things I saw recently, uh, I know I saw a 10-year, but I saw a five-year. And the idea was that uh, forward PE and the subsequent five-year annualized returns. And when I read this, I think it was last week, we are at an 18.6 times forward PE on the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 just means all those companies that are in there, you aggregate all of the earnings estimates together, and then you look at the price and the price over uh, the index, the aggregate uh, earnings on all the companies in the index. And so 18.6. And what's interesting, though, if you look at that, uh, certainly that's not you know, a chart I saw, and I'll link to JP Morgan on the markets. And the idea is that uh, where we are right now, uh, if you look at some of the other instances, we were right around this level. Um, I mean, you know, there are years when you were probably the subsequent five-year annualized return was, you know, 10 to 15% annualized. And there were a bunch of results where it was more flat or, uh, or down. And there's something, without getting into a, a stats class, uh, they did mention that the R-square on this is only 46%. And so the idea is the higher the R-square, uh, the more, uh, I don't want to say predictive, but um, the more accurate, I'll, I'll put that in air quotes, your regression analysis is. So, you know, we're not very low on forward price to earnings, but here's the thing. Let's say that the analyst all of a sudden double their earnings estimates. Well, now we'd be trading at 9.3 times next year's earnings. So it's an important point to make that analyst estimates can change, actual earnings can change, and that you know could be a big differentiating point. But let me get back to this dollars and cents. Um, I'm, I'm saying this wrong. It's of dollarsanddata.com. I'll link to it. And what this person did, uh, looks like this person's name is Nick. And uh, he wrote an article, uh, Nick Majulia, hopefully I didn't uh, mispronounce that. But he wrote an article where he looked at, uh, he did sort of a GIF where it, it ever changed. And it was everything from the one-year future growth based upon 10-year prior returns to 10-year future growth based upon 10-year prior returns. And one of the things he did was when you start to put this data in motion, uh, there really wasn't much of a pattern. In other words, you know, just because the 30-year prior annualized returns, 10-year uh, prior annualized returns were 10%, uh, you know, it had everything from your stocks or the market going up 500, 600, 700%, which would be, you know, then you would annualize that over 10 years, um, to being flat. And so the 10-year didn't really see too much. And then the other thing that was really interesting too is that, so he put a chart up here. And if you, if you go to the site that I linked to, you can pull up these and kind of listen along. Uh, but he did the S&P 500 10-year future growth based upon 10-year prior returns. This doesn't really care about valuation. It just cares about when you had a prior return that was you know around 13.3%. What was the growth of a dollar over the next decade? So this is looking at times that happened in the past. 
And it's really interesting because the range was uh, you had a, a plus 400% cumulative return, which would be about 17% annualized return, uh, all the way down to basically flat. In other words, uh, in instances where you had a prior decade of around right where we returned the last decade, it was all over the map. There really wasn't too much of a, a predictive value there. And I'll let you see that uh, if you go to the, the, uh, the chart. But what I thought was really interesting was this idea where the 10-year future growth based upon 20-year prior return. Now, think about this. In the prior 20 years, so this includes 2000, it includes uh, you know, the Great Recession. So 2000 to December, January 2000, December 19, the S&P compounded at a rate of 6.3%. So over 20 years, that's the average annualized compounded annual growth rate with dividends reinvested according to this article. And, you know, historically markets compounding according to the article, six to six and a half percent over the prior 20 years, went on to grow between four times and five and a half times over the next 10 years. So what does that mean? Well, if it grew four times, uh, as much, right? Uh, or five and a half times, let's say five and a half times or just split the difference, right? Let's say five. Well, it's not actually splitting the difference, but if you grow five times, I mean, that puts you something like, you know, five, a dollar turns into five and a half dollars. So quite a, quite a high average annualized return. So the reason why I bring this up is that sometimes it matters what group of years you're, and there's always this danger of curve fitting with some of these these things. Uh, but whenever you, you're looking at this, it's sort of interesting to pull different periods like they did or, or, or like he did. And the other thing too is that if let's say the S&P only doubled, and again, we're using all hypotheticals, who knows what's going to happen with the markets. Um, that's why you buy the market. In my opinion, you buffer it or you hedge it with strategies. But let's say the the S and P only doubled. So, meaning if you have a dollar now, you have two dollars. What's really interesting is that, uh, according to you know a study, um, that would be an outlier, meaning that would be significantly lower than historically has happened in the past when you had a a twenty year period where the market's only averaged about 6.5% annualized growth rate. So the point of his article was, and I don't think he's trying to make predictions, and he says, um, you know, if history were to repeat itself in some meaningful way, and I'm quoting, the S&P would be four times higher by 2030 than, it, uh, than where it is today. And so, and he self-admits, uh, you know, he'll, he'll look like a fool eventually, uh, and I'm quoting him, uh, but it is kind of interesting to look at that type of prediction. So I think the point is, though, that we really don't know what's going to happen with markets. Uh, you know, we certainly don't. But all of these things that you're seeing coming out where they're like, hey, the market's only going to go up annual, average annualized return 3% over the next decade. If you grab different bits of data based upon the price return, you could tell a different story. Um, valuations are another thing. Uh, certainly valuations are, um, they're not historically expensive. They're not historically cheap either. 
um, you know, in the in the late seventies, PE ratios were really low, and I think the the CAPE ratio was something like nine or ten. Today, it's you know, uh, twenty five or higher, right? But here's where I think sometimes on these valuations, the people fail to take into account the interest rate environment, and so there's this thing without going into a big, long dissertation on the cost of equity and the capital asset pricing model and all those types of things, part of the way that someone doing fundamental analysis, so not technicals, but fundamental analysis, part of what they would be doing potentially is taking a stock's uh, current cash flows and cash flow for a stock. And you know, a good way to put it is, let's say you own a coffee shop and at the end of the year, you look in the cash register if you've you know invested back in the business, you've paid your employees, bought your supplies, what do you have in the register? So cash flow is one of those fundamental things for, for corporations. And let's say you are a fundamental al- analyst doing discounted cash flow to try and come up with some intrinsic value. Well, that sounds really detailed and hard, and, and maybe it is, but essentially they're saying, look, you're gonna they predict you're gonna, you know what you earned uh, cash flow-wise, uh, the trailing. Uh, four quarters. And these analysts, what they do is they try and predict, you know, one, two, three, four, five years out. And then they say, look, I can't really predict too far in the future. The corporation's going to keep going on. So I'll assume they're going to grow perpetually at some, you know, maybe uh, at the same rate that the economy does. So, but one of the, the functions in that exercise is the analyst has to come up with what's called a cost of capital. And the capital asset pricing model the formula for that is you take the risk-free rate, which is the three-month treasury, you know, you can use some other things, plus the beta. And so a stock with, a let's say, a beta of 1.2 would be 1.2 as volatile as the S&P times the risk premium. And the equity risk premium, a lot of debate on that, but the equity risk premium essentially is what would somebody, uh, you know, look to get above the, the risk-free rate uh, without complicating it. I'll, I'll leave it there. So let's say that you had a stock that had a beta of 1.2, a risk-free rate of 1.5, and, and we'll say the equity risk premium is 6%. And that's based upon the, the NYU Stern numbers from Aswath Damodoran. And if you do the formula, you'd say the cost of capital is 8.7%. Okay. Uh, it's not a class on valuation. So we'll just say, uh, if I was going to discount down the expected or the predicted cash flows for a company, I'd have to discount them down to the present using that number. Now, what's interesting is, let's say the risk-free rate was 6%, which is where it was, I believe, you know, probably right around 95 or so, I'd have to go back and look. But if you make the risk-free rate 6%, well, then your cost of capital jumps from 8.7% to 13.2%. What does that mean? Let's say you expected to get a billion dollars in free cash flow in a year. If you discount it by 8.7, uh, that's 919 million, uh, the value discounted to today's dollars. If you discount it at 13.2, uh, then it's only worth 883 million. And the reason why I point that up is that if a stock's, if its value, and I'm, I'm using some air quotes here, because stocks will trade where they trade, and that's the reality. It's supply and demand. It's a uh, you know, momentum plays uh, a role in this and stocks can get overvalued, they can get undervalued depending upon the, the trade flows. But if you just look at this and you say, well, look, uh, all these valuations that people are throwing out there, 
when interest rates are really, really low, aren't the, the future expected cash flows worth more? Because you don't have to discount them down as much. And that's why when you look at back at a period of late 70s, when P.E. ratios and valuations were much lower, well, let's be honest. I mean, we had inflation in the 70s. Uh, March of, what was it, 81, I think a three-month treasury was probably like 12 to 15%. Imagine your cost of capital then. So the point is that as you're discounting down uh, at lower interest rates, you know, maybe these uh, higher valuations uh, are more a reflection of the lower interest rate environment. So look, no predictions and who the heck knows what's going to happen with the market. And when you watch CNBC and you watch these people come on there and make predictions, that's great. It's entertaining. Uh, but look, if you're someone who is investing and you're putting money away, maybe you have a 401k, you have an account, uh, there is uh, historically, you know, stocks have created a positive uh, annualized compounded growth rate over time. Sure, there's been decades that uh, really kind of spun your wheels, decades that were good. There's been recessions, there's been bull markets. Uh, but this is why it's important to stay invested. But it's also important to have some sort of a downside protection, buffers or hedges, uh, that can help to uh, to soften the blow and at least let you take some of the, the angst and the anxiety about worrying about is the market too high, is it the right time to invest? So I'll leave it there. And uh, I think that's all my, my voice can take after being uh, sick for a little bit. But uh, I'll link to the article of dollars and cents. I think you should take a look at that. It's, it's uh, worth noting. I'll also link to the JP Morgan Guide to the Markets. You can see some of the forward PE uh, scatter plots in there as well. Um, and so with that, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week and uh, we'll see you soon.